Today we'll be reading from Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 976. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, by the grace of God, we made it through Ephesians chapter 1. So at this pace, we will definitely wrap this up by summer 2020. (laughs) At least that's a clear vision. In case you're actually anxious about that, it's not about the pace, it's about what we are building. And trying to follow along with Paul and what he's been building, you've got to lay the foundation And do that work first and do it well. And so Paul has been preparing our minds and our hearts to receive and to engage with who God is and what he has done, that we might know him, and therefore that we might know who we are and what we are called to. If you're going to build a house, you spend plenty of time, lead time, preparation time, and planning, and studies, and drawings, to prepare that foundation, to prepare the soil for the foundation. And once that is set and done right, uh, the, the building tends to go up rather quickly. And so perhaps it'll be similar for us as we move through uh, the next few chapters. As we've already been hinting at and reading from, some of it will sound familiar because I have been quoting extensively, especially from chapters 2 and 3. These are themes that Paul has been laying the foundation for and now is fleshing out in greater fullness. So let's jump right into sin. The pastor's famous last words. Sin is not a very popular subject today, but it is a pervasive one in the Bible, and it is no less a pervasive problem today. Pastor Timothy Keller said, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope, and this is the gospel And this is the gospel on full display in Ephesians chapter 2 with far more famous words than any Dr. Timothy Keller or any other preacher since Paul has ever proclaimed because these were written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So hear the gospel in these words again. You were dead 
in your trespasses and sin, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, has made us alive together with Jesus. This is the gospel. It's the great news. Though you were dead, he has made you alive. Life through death. It's kind of a big deal in the Bible. It's kind of central. It's crucial that we begin to grasp it more fully. And I want us to understand sin more fully in order that we would understand grace and mercy more completely. Think of a diamond. Have you ever, ever been jewelry shopping? And they, they take out the, the rings or the, the diamond and they lay it on a black cloth. Why? Why? So that all that light would focus through the diamond and it would gleam and it would appear to be even more brilliant and more bright. And if we could see grace and mercy rightly, it, would, it must be laid above and against our own sin and a right understanding of the pervasive problem of sin. I want to consider these two pictures or analogies that Paul uses for sin. It is both a condition and it is like a kingdom. Those are the two pictures that he gives us in Ephesians 2. First, a condition. Sin is like a disease that ultimately kills. Sin is like a cancer, perhaps that we've been living with for years unaware of at times and other times suppressing and ignoring the symptoms of that cancer, perhaps ignoring them, though we need a doctor to diagnose truly what is going on, we ignore because we fear it is far worse than we imagined. If we only think of sin in probably the, the common way that we think or our world thinks of sin, so we probably are no different, if we only think of it as bad or wrong actions that we do, then we haven't even begun to understand the depth of sin. If sin is merely bad things that we do, then there's also a hope that we can manage sin. We can do less bad, uh, maybe do more good, and somehow flip the scales, flip that balance. That's one danger to thinking of it as merely actions, deeds. And if we can shift the scales through our work and effort, do less bad, do more good, we become our own savior. We have saved ourselves from sin. Perhaps even the greater risk of thinking of sin as merely bad deeds is that we then begin to categorize people. We categorize the good people from the bad people. Of course, where are some of the good ones? But we've drawn that line, haven't we? How good is good enough? We've determined what that is. So in addition to being our savior, our own savior, we become judge. Our world is, is pretty good at this. Dividing the good from the bad and drawing where that line is. It believes people are inherently good who sometimes do bad, except for the truly evil people who only do bad, but we will be the judge of that. And while the Bible does speak of evil actions, 
Even Paul here speaks of trespasses, transgressions. That is not the primary diagnosis it gives to sin. God says in Jeremiah, through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Something is wrong. There is a condition that is called a sickness. Jesus clearly taught this repeatedly, that this is the problem of sin. It is not just actions, it is a condition. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, Jesus is passing on, passing through with his disciples, and he sees a man named Matthew, who is a tax collector, and he said to Matthew, follow me. And so Matthew came and followed him, he was also known as Levi, And Jesus came to his house and he reclined at the table with him. And behold, many of Matthew's friends, tax collectors and sinners, came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, eating and drinking. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See right there, they diagnosed good and evil people. Were the good ones These tax collectors, they're sinners, they're the bad ones. I thought your teacher was supposed to be one of the good ones. Why does he associate with the bad ones? See, the danger of falling short in our understanding of the problem of sin. But when Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well, you might as well insert, those who believe they are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, No, they need a doctor. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, but not sacrifice. For I came to call not the righteous, but call sinners. The Pharisees, as we've often said, they were fair, you see, because they believed that they, by following the law and by their own Jewish heritage, were God's people and therefore holy and righteous, blameless, pleasing in God's sight. And what Jesus was saying is those who believe they have no need of healing, they believe they are well, they never go to a physician. And that's not for whom I came. Though we know Jesus came for all the world and loved all the world, he's making the right contrast here. All people need to be healed, but I came for those who know they are sick and dying with no access to a physician, with no ability to be healed. That's who I've come for. Jesus often called the Pharisees and the religious blind. They were blind. They could not see. Again, blindness and much to their anger, they were furious at him for suggesting that they could not see. They thought they were the most enlightened ones. But again, listen to the terms that Jesus uses about our condition Blindness is not our own actions or a result. It is a condition, just as sickness is. In order to see, you must be miraculously healed. If you are sick, you must find a physician who can diagnose and can heal. So Jesus is proclaiming what has already been proclaimed, that what the Pharisees should have known, that their actions, even their best actions, their actions according to the Scriptures, any amount of good that they did does not heal 
does not make them good. Though they followed the religious system and brought all of the sacrifices necessary for their sin, those were temporary. They had to continue to bring them month after month, year after year, because they were sinful through and through. Their actions did not make them well. It's just like medicines that might mitigate symptoms of a disease, but cannot heal. We need a deeper healing. And God is always primarily concerned with our condition, not our actions. The internal more than the external. So Jesus quoted from Hosea, words that the Jews, the Pharisees above all, would have, would have had memorized. He quotes from the prophet Hosea 6, verse 6. God says, For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God has always been primarily concerned with our heart and our condition, our spiritual wholeness and wellness and healing, not our external actions. So Paul is teaching this in Ephesians 2. What is the ultimate result of disease? The end of it is death. And so that is what Paul is wanting us to see. That sin is not merely the bad things we do. That comes out of a diseased heart. A sinful condition. And he says you were dead in your sin. Which means spiritually you are you're dead. You're unresponsive. You cannot see. But it's also the sentence, isn't it? Just remember that famous line in the, in the Green Mile. And they call out dead man walking because he was sentenced to death. Though he was still living and breathing, it may as well have been that he was already dead. And that's the sentence we are under. Because of our condition, we are already dead spiritually. And Paul says, all of us also. Not just you Ephesians, you Gentiles, you non-Jews were dead, because that's the way the Jews would have liked to see it. We're the good ones, we're the chosen ones, we're the holy ones. We are pleasing in God's sight. In order to be acceptable in God's sight, you must first become Jewish. Paul says no. All of us also, we lived the same way. We walked amongst them. We followed our own desires. We were just as dead in our own transgressions. He said this in Romans chapter 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's the diagnosis. That's the condition. And praise God, the story doesn't end there. The dead don't tend to call out to God, but He calls out to the dead. So we've already been singing this morning. This is God through the power of the Holy Spirit who calls out to dead bones, to dry bones, to the spiritually dead and says, come alive And the only way that's even possible is that he himself puts his spirit within us to breathe new life, life through death, life in place of death. When Jesus came, probably the pinnacle, 
miracle. Certainly that's the way the Apostle John writes his gospel in John. He, he, he reveals uh, many signs that point to who Jesus is and what he has come to do and the kind of the pinnacle one before Jesus' own crucifixion and death and resurrection. Jesus calls out to Lazarus, the dead man, from the grave and rises him. Lazarus, come forth. He brings him through death to life. But before he does that, He's meeting with Lazarus' sister, Martha, who's crying out to him, Jesus, if you were here, you could have healed him. You could have spared him. But to give God more glory, Jesus had delayed and waited. And so he's talking with Martha. This is verse 25 of John 11. And he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He's not just only the healer. He's the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he says to Martha, do you believe? And and she says yes, but in this, I wonder if she understood what Jesus was truly asking. Do you believe? Not just that I give life, but he was asking Martha, like he would ask each one of us, do you believe you are no different than Lazarus? Spiritually, you are dead. You are in the grave Do you believe I am the resurrection and the life? He calls out to us, come forth, come to life. Unless we see the direness of our condition, we do not come to our healer. We must hear that call and we must respond to it. There was also a man named Nicodemus who came to Jesus. This is John chapter 3. Nicodemus was not only a Pharisee, he was leader of the Sanhedrin. He was like Pharisee of Pharisees. There was no one more religious than him. No one considered more righteous than him. Blameless, holy in the eyes of the Jews. And he came to Jesus at night because to be seen conversing and interacting with this rabbi was not a popular thing for his position. And even this man, as blameless and holy and righteous as he was, On earth, in accordance with the law, Jesus said to him very clearly, John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot come into the kingdom of God. Jesus told him that he too needed new life. He essentially said, you are dead and must be born again. He was pretty consistent in his ministry. Have you heard the term born again thrown around like it's some kind of metal that's been won or, I don't know, degree that's been earned and a title that we now bear? I'm a born again Christian. And even in that, pride can bubble up because we're now the, we're, we're one of the good ones, the chosen ones, and others are just uh, lesser. As if we could distinguish a, a, a Christian and a born again Christian. Is that what we're trying to say? But born again in accordance with the way Jesus calls this term is that that means I know I was dead spiritually. I had nothing and no hope. I was apart from God, separated from Him. I deserve to remain dead. But God, because of His rich mercy, because of His great love, called to me and gave me life. It's all for His glory. And if that's what we mean by saying born again, then praise God, the giver of life. Some of you here today, you know what this is like to be in that hospital room and have the doctor walk in with the heavy look on his face 
and say words similar to these. There is nothing more we can do. And then whatever follows is sometimes just a blur of information. The cancer is too aggressive. It is spread. The paralysis is too complete. The damage is too severe. We can help you be more comfortable. Or we can help your loved one be more comfortable. Praise God, that is not the gospel. The gospel isn't, we can help you, it can help you be more comfortable. The gospel is, it offers you life. It is healing. It is wholeness, spiritually. And our spiritual condition is more dire than any physical condition we could ever find ourselves in. Now imagine if that same doctor said there's nothing more we can do, but there is one. There is one doctor who can heal this. It wouldn't matter where that doctor is, halfway across the world. It wouldn't matter if he demanded a fee that you could not possibly hope to pay. You would do anything and go to any length just to have the opportunity to beg that physician to see you, to heal you. And yet the gospel is nothing like that. The gospel is, yes, we are more sick than we ever thought, and yet we are already healed in Jesus. It is finished. It is done. There is no spiritual journey you must travel on. There is no price you could ever pay There's no amount of words that could ever be begged to earn and receive. It is simply a gift to be received and to say thank you and then live in a way that is never the same for those who have been given their life back tend to do just that. For by grace, Paul says, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works that no one can boast. If you pay for a gift, it is no longer a gift. If you pay for something, you've earned it. If you've worked for something, it's a wage. It's deserved. And that is not the gospel. It has been done apart from any effort, apart from any work. It is a gift. The the this here, grammatically, cannot be attached to any one thing. And For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. There's at least three things in that verse that we might say, well, what is it, Paul? What's the this? And this is a gift. Grace, faith, Being saved? Yes. Now this can't point to anyone, so it is all of the above. It is all a gift that no one can boast. Our grace, even the faith we have to employ, and our very salvation, our healing, our wholeness is all a gift, and we can only receive it. Have you ever tried to give a gift and had it be rejected? Had it be refused? Have, Have you ever done that? You try to say, I'm not, I'm not worthy, no, or let me pay you for that. It, it hurts the giver. It offends the giver. It cheapens what was supposed to be a gift. 
And we can receive or we can reject and refuse, whether out of arrogance or ignorance, out of insecurity or shame, but all to the hurt of the giver. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is a gift that no one may boast. Sin is a condition, a sickness that leads to death, but our healing has already been provided. That's picture number one. Picture number two is it is like a kingdom. Now some of you maybe only needed that one, and you're ready to respond. You're saying, I, I know how sick I have been, and ultimately still am, and I have a healer, and I long to come to him and through prayer and into the communion and in response. Hang in there. Some might need to hear this. Sin is like a kingdom, according to the Apostle Paul. A kingdom ruled by a malicious and devious prince who has sought to usurp his father and ours. He says, Paul, you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The title prince, where it shows up in the Old Testament, refers usually to a national or a local or a tribal leader, but someone put in place under a greater ruler, a king with only marginal, temporary authority and jurisdiction. This is very clearly what Paul is referring to. There is a prince of this world, but he has temporary and limited authority and power because there is a greater king. This prince rules a kingdom, to be sure, for a time, but he is under and subject to the greater king. He is making this contrast. This is clearly Satan, the ultimate enemy. He's the prince of the world. Jesus called him repeatedly the ruler of this world. Paul called him in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this land. And he bears other titles as well. Paul is describing these two kingdoms. They're contrasted. The kingdom of this world, ruled by this prince of temporary power who speaks false promises to lure and ultimately to enslave as many as possible. The contrast is the kingdom that Paul has just finished proclaiming at the end of chapter 1. The kingdom of heaven ruled by Jesus, Lord and King of all. This is Ephesians 1.20. Christ is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places. Think throne room. Far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, above every other name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And God put all things under his feet. You see the contrasted kingdoms. While sin is a condition that kills, it is also like a kingdom that enslaves. And this kingdom we walk into willingly. In this, you once walked this kingdom of the world. It is a powerful and influential kingdom. This world we live in with its culture, it's hard to escape what it proclaims and reinforces as values, its attitudes, its habits, the lifestyle it proclaims. It allures us, if not sweeps us up. And just as a test, we can ask a Christ follower and a non-Christ follower the same questions and often hear the very same answers. 
I'm guilty of it. You probably are too. How is your week? How are you doing? How are things? However you want to shape that question. And the answer is almost always the same because it's a value in our culture. Oh, busy. And even if we weren't busy, we say busy because we must be busy because that's the value. It's, it's, it's something that enslaves us as well as something we worship. Believing ultimately the right amount of busyness and fullness and the picture thereof well, what is what brings fulfillment in life because that's what our world says will happen. The more full we are, maybe the more numb we are, maybe the more important we think we are. And that's just one example. When the very same questions that we ask to someone who is living and walking in the kingdom of God under the rule of Jesus and the one who is living and walking in the kingdom of this world under the rule of Satan, when those answers are the very same ones, we prove we are still enslaved and entrapped to the ruler of the kingdom of the air who unlike any other ruler, he's more deceitful, he's more crafty and cunning than we could ever imagine. He's been at it for a long time. As it has been said, maybe his greatest work in our culture is to convince us he doesn't exist. To convince us that we actually can be the ruler of our kingdom, knowing ultimately where that leads. His promises are false. He both speaks false promises to allure and he seeds doubt in God's promises that we might distrust. And he's been doing this since the beginning. That snapshot we're given in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve where they're engaging with the serpent is so vital for us to understand because nothing has changed in the economy of this world. Our enemy is still trying to win though he's already been defeated and the time is temporary. But his lies are the same. The very same lies he spoke to Eve are the same lures he speaks to us. Did God really say you cannot eat from any tree in the garden? Satan knew that was not true. And so he engaged Eve because she said, no, that's not what God said. First mistake. Well, maybe first mistake was being near the tree in the first place. But she engages a lie. To correct. That's not what God said. So again, this is the very same way that the enemy lies to us. We hear something that a spiritual person says, and we go, that's not right. And we engage. And ultimately, Satan will draw us away from God and His promises. Once we've engaged with Him, then he, his, his lies start to go deeper. We've taken the lure. Look and see with your own eyes. This fruit is good. You know that to be true. How could a loving God keep something good from you? Why would He do that? That must mean by His character, He is not good. Here's what God doesn't want is you to become like Him. The greatest lie of all, we already are. We've been created in His image. Satan attacks the character of God and the Word of God. And his lies are the same for us today. I hope you can do that work of translation. What is it that this world allures us to under the power of the prince of the air that ultimately 
seeds doubt in God's character and goodness. It sounds the same, doesn't it? Do you, you, you hear these? You feel these lies. What is following God faithfully really giving you? What difference is that really making? It's ultimately empty. If you were to live your life the way that you want to live your life, it would be fulfilled. Look, look and see the good that's around you that God is saying no to. How could that be a good God? Is God even around? Look around you. Look around your life and this world. And you think God is good and present? Reach out and take the life that you were meant to lead. The lies have not changed. Why would he have to adjust something that's working perfectly? Ultimately, the essence of the lie is Satan says through whatever means he can say it to us, in my kingdom, in this kingdom, you can rule. You can be judge. You can be savior. You can be in control. And it will be glorious. You can have everything you imagined your own kingdom. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. All you have to do is worship me. Is that not what he said to Jesus in the garden? I will give you everything that is mine. Just worship me. His lies haven't changed. And Jesus said of him in John eight forty four, he was a murderer from the beginning. He has been striving to kill God. And to kill God, he must kill his followers because God lives in them. He does not stand in the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he simply speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the kingdom that enslaves And the sickness that kills are ultimately the same because we would give anything and trade anything for a sense of that personal kingdom of satisfaction, fulfillment, peace, control, power, influence. We'd trade our soul. But like a drug that leaves us euphoric or numb for a moment and yet crushes us is buying into the lies that that will fulfill us. But our own flesh is at work. The news gets worse before it gets better. We've got three things working against us. The world and its ways, the prince and his lies, and our flesh with its desires. Start to become hopeless. Hang in there. 1 John 2, 15, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Our flesh, our pride, our self-centeredness wants what it wants. The picture of sin, maybe the best one and the most concise one, I, I, I think it's so powerful of a picture of sin is in Jeremiah 2.13. I, I brought it before us last week. God says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have dug out cisterns for themselves, but they're broken cisterns that can hold no water. And the third evil would be, they do not recognize it. 
I'm the source of all life, the source of all fullness. They'll never thirst. Trust me, you'll never thirst or long or hunger for anything. But you've rejected that fountain and you've dug out for yourselves. You've sought to be in control, powerful, life-giving in yourself, in the work of your hands, what you can accomplish, though it holds no water. There's no life there. It's only death. It's the flesh and its desire to be our own God and our own King. The fountain of living water has not dried up, nor has it moved. We have. We have both moved and then therefore dried up. The picture that Ezekiel gives us that we've already been singing, apart from the living water, but Jesus says, just as John 7, come to me. And all who thirst and all who come to me, the living water, the fountain of life will flow from them again. This is the verdict. This is our diagnosis. It's our condition and the kingdom that we've chosen. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. This is every one of us. As Isaiah 53. But it is not the end of the story. So you've hung in there, Good. It is not the end. It's the first part of the gospel, the essential part of the gospel, the black cloth that the diamond of the gospel sits upon, but God. It has been said that those two words are some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture, but God. Paul said it in Romans 5.8, but God. He shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Nothing had changed We were dead on the valley. We were dry bones. We were away from the living water. But God died to bring us life, to make us alive. And he says it here in Ephesians 2. But God, though you were dead in transgressions, because he is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, when we were dead, he has made us alive with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. Why would God do this? Because his nature is love. It's who he is. And his love expressed to us is mercy. It is kindness. It is amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Like Paul, I am giving an outer call of the gospel. For you in the room and for those that may be listening, this is an outer call, a plea to hear the word of God that he calls us. We are invited to his kingdom, but that's too weak of a word. We are called, beckoned, adopted, transformed, rescued, delivered. He says it like this in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. You have been saved, rescued, transferred, given life. All because of who He is, not because of what we have done. So I am giving an outer call. But the only ones that respond to it hear the inner call of the gospel. And I'm both encouraged by that and frustrated by that. As a preacher, I can make no difference. I am but a voice, but a mouthpiece. 
only the power of the Holy Spirit that brings the call inwardly to dead people can bring life and healing and freedom. Do you hear it inwardly? For those that have already responded and are living a life striving to respond to the kingship of Jesus, you will hear it inwardly. And it beckons you, come. You have been saved. You have been adopted. But you are just as prone to drift because you're still in the flesh. So return. Come. Stop drifting. Stop digging those cisterns. Come to me. I'm the fountain of living water. And it's why we have a regular rhythm as we do, because we are so prone to forget. It's why Jesus' words said at the communion table, do this in remembrance. Why would we need to be told to remember if he didn't know we're prone to forget? Do this in remembrance of where the source of all life comes from. That's why we respond to him this morning and every Sunday in this way. For those of you who have never come to trust Jesus, no matter how many good actions you have done, they mean nothing until you have been made alive by the grace of God, until you simply receive the gift. Are you hearing the call, perhaps for the first discernible time inwardly? That verse is really a word, that phrase in our translation is really a word in the Greek. I, I won't go there with you today. I don't need to, but I can tell you it means something that we, don't usually would, we wouldn't usually say in our English today. It means quickened. He has made us alive equals he has quickened us. It's just not language that we would necessarily use, but what that means is if you have heard the inward call, is there something in you that is quickening your heart starts to beat faster. You start to feel it. It starts to pound. There is something physically happening within you with that inner call, the working of the heart. Though the concept of the heart was the whole person, not just a, a muscle, an organ pumping blood. So it's more than just a faster heartbeat like we might get if we're anxious or nervous around the edge of something big. There is something deeper it doesn't mean everything will be tangibly felt, but it's like you are being drawn in. It's like a, you're, a, you're a fish that's been caught in a net. So you're, you're not hooked in a malicious way like the enemy does, and there's pain, and you're trapped, and you can't get away. It's like you're just being drawn in. That's some of a way to describe the inward call of God. You may describe it differently. But if you hear it today, then respond to him. Come to him. Come to the table that reminds us that our healing and our freedom has been accomplished. His life is already given. That's what we see in the bread. It was broken. It was torn apart. It was laid aside. His blood has already been shed from the cross. That's our life. It's in our place. He is the final sacrifice. He alone makes us holy and righteous and the only thing we can do is receive so we come to the table and we receive and we say thank you Jesus for giving me life help me never be the same as we come to know him we come to live for him and that's our work we are created for work to do but our first work 
is walking in faith to Jesus. So we could say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, so that the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'll invite the team to come and I'll pray for us. Lord Jesus, King Jesus, you're seated on the throne. You're interceding. You hear us now. You're also the God with us through the power of the Spirit. You're the God who reminds us of what has already been done. That because you passed through death, through the grave, and rose again, you have conquered sin, evil, death, and the enemy. And our flesh as well. It has been done. It is finished. Help us receive today. Remind us of the riches of your mercy, the greatness of your love, and your amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. was blind, and now we see. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.